Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. This hour, I'll talk with poet DJ Savarese about his new poetry collection. It's called Swoon. And then later on, folk singer Greg Brown reflects on his career, his music, and retirement. But first, this is Black History Month, a time when many schools have special events to celebrate Black history, amplify the voices and stories of Black Americans, and explode some myths or misconceptions. A few years ago, Sharita Stokes came up with an idea that does all of those things. At the time, she was a classroom teacher at Cunningham Elementary in Waterloo, Iowa, and she wanted to push back against the stereotype that Black men don't read. She called it Black Men Read Week and invited black men from the community to come to her classroom to read books to her students. Now, Black Men Read has gone district-wide in Waterloo with more than 100 readers connecting with students, and it starts tomorrow. Sharita Stokes is a veteran teacher in Waterloo Community School. She teaches fifth grade at Lincoln Elementary, and she is the co-director of the 1619 Freedom School. Hello, Sharita. Hello. How are you guys? Wonderful. Thank you so much for being here. And let's start with this stereotype. Tell me about the stereotype that Black men don't read. Well, if you think about it, most of the time, not even just Black men, a lot of times if you think about family dynamics at home, mom usually reads the bedtime stories. And then if you think about teachers, just across any district, the majority of the teachers are women. So typically, most students and kids hear women reading. Black men just also have a different type of stigma around them, and a lot of it is stereotypes based on what you see on TV, what you hear on movies or in music and different things like that. So a lot of people don't look at Black men as people who are reading, people who are educated. A lot of times they look at them as the thugs or the different stereotypes that they see on TV in different places. So one of the main things I wanted to do was show that Black men do read, and it's okay for Black men to read, especially with this day and age and, like I said, stereotypes and different things like that. As a parent, uh, when my kids were little, the number one piece of advice I got was if you want your kids to be readers, you should read to them and they should see you read. And I am sure that you as a teacher and the founder of a school that promotes literacy, I'm sure that you have probably given that very advice to a lot of parents over the years. Yes, all the time. I tell them all the time, have your kid read to you even while you are cooking. They can read out loud to you. That will help build their fluency. Or even just if you read something together, they read a page, you read a page. Um, I always encourage that family reading aspect and different things like that, because a lot of times children mimic what they see at home. So if you are not a reader, it's a high chance that your kid is not going to have a high interest in books because they don't have a plethora of books around at their house or they're not seeing anybody else reading. And so it was really important to me to show Black men read because of the fact that it's something that typically kids don't see. And then they can look at these people that they see every day. They can look at their barbers, the guy who owns the store, their dads come in, their grandpas, the pharmacists, 
the police department, the mayor, people from the school board, like they can see all these different walks of life and they can see that all types of black men read and they can also take it upon themselves to say, well, hey, they read, they're cool and I can do that too. Do you remember the moment when you had this idea when you thought, hey, I I could make this happen in my classroom? I was actually working at Cunningham. I was teaching third grade with Charmin Chambers and Misty Thompson. That was probably one of my favorite teams ever to work with. And we were actually, when we first did it, we just had one reader for each of our classes. We were doing a culminating event for our reading unit on starting to read and enjoying reading. And we just thought about having three guys come in and show that they enjoy reading. And so my brother, Astor Williams, he worked with the Waterloo School Board, um, was one of the first readers. Um, Gary Crawford, who actually was at that time going to school to become a teacher, who is now a fifth grade teacher at Kittrell. And Andre Bradford, who is a high school friend that I've known (laughs) all my life. They were my first three readers, and they came to read in the faces of the kids, like they lit up, they just looked so excited. And it was like, oh, well, why don't we do this more often? And so it just kind of worked out that my then administrator was like, hey, I was like, I, can I have like last week in February and have a black man come read to every classroom? Because our third grade kids enjoyed this so much, I'd like to spread it to the building. She was like, yes, go ahead. So that first year I had maybe about 15 or 16 men come in and read to each classroom. The second year I had 48 men. Wow. (laughs) Some of them were going, hey, can I read at this school? Hey, can I read at this school? And at that time it wasn't scheduled for other buildings. And I was like, well, I don't know. I can't just send you over to another building. I don't have permission. (laughs) Um, So I was so thankful for Jen Hartman, who is works at the ESC for elementary education. And her and I had a conversation and she was like, yes, I feel like this is something all the schools will benefit from, not just one or two schools. So I actually just sent an email out to the teachers in the district like, hey, you know, Black Men Read Week has been going on for a few years. This is actually the fifth year of doing it. If anybody is interested, please sign up course, I was not prepared to open up that email and have over 100 teachers and 100 classes from across the district all interested in having a reader. (laughs) It was like, oh, now I have to find readers. Right. A lot, (laughs) a lot of readers. So, I mean, you talk about the kids' faces lighting up. Did you see or experience anything else in those those early experiences that, that really helped you understand how powerful this was? Did the kids say things to you about it? Yes, I had this one little boy that was in my classroom, and he was really a struggling reader. He was at least two, three years below the rest of the kids in the classroom. He missed a lot of school. He was scared to read out loud. After we had that Black Man Read Week, it was like every day during recess, he wanted to sit in front of the room and practice reading his books, even though he was at books that were like way lower than the ones the rest of the kids were reading. It was just that little piece of confidence where he's seeing this guy come in and his Jordans and his jersey. It looked like people he know and was like, oh, I don't have to have a suit and tie to read. I don't have to, you know, be there at the top of the class to read. I can read right, right where I'm at. And to me, that was the most powerful piece of it all, because here you have a non-reader who now wants to read just by seeing a man read to him. Amazing. Wow. I can imagine that this can be kind of an emotional experience for some of the men who come read 
as well. What have they told you about why it feels important to them? They love it. The first year when I asked a few of the men in the community who own stores, I remember one saying, nobody has ever asked me to do anything like that. I'm not sure. And I'm like, well, come in and come read. And then after that, it's like they request. They're like, I want to read again. I loved it because they enjoy coming into the classrooms because most of them, after they read, they do questions and answers and just give a little bit of some life to the kids. They tell them some things they can use in the future and just kind of mentor them. And I've had men adopt classrooms they've been at and send books to the teacher and correspond with the teacher. So the coolest thing to me is the relationship that's growing from the Black men in the community in these classrooms almost coming in and saying, Yep, I can come in. You know, I love this classroom. I want to keep coming back to this room or let me send some books to this room. And it's just, I I think just overall, it's just a happy feeling for everyone. Absolutely. I mean, a real, an opportunity to make a real difference without necessarily having to make a big commitment. Yeah, yeah. So expanding Black Men Read district-wide, you said you were not expecting this overwhelming response and requests How have you handled that? How have you recruited over 100 readers? You know what? Honestly, Facebook. Like, literally, I have a um, Black Men Read Facebook page, and a lot of the guys who read in the past always want to come back, and then they tend to bring someone else. So when I put out that I had over 100 classrooms that needed readers, the men in Waterloo really stepped up. They came out of the woodwork like, hey, I want to read. I had a few barbers like, hey, the whole barbershop is coming to read. Or <laughs> I'm going to have my brother come read, too. And I had moms like, hey, my son needs to be a part of that. Please contact him so he can read. I mean, it was like such an overwhelming response, like not only from the teachers who wanted readers, but the men just really honestly stepped up and was like, hey, you know what? We've been interested in this. We really want to do this. And it's just amazing to see just everybody working together. It's it's just, it's like an amazing feeling. That is so wonderful. And it's so exciting to hear that it's so meaningful to every person, you know, the kids and the people who are reading. And these men who are coming into the classroom, they're setting an example for the black students in the room, but they're setting an example for all of the students in the room. And any little boy seeing a man read, that has to give them a role model. But I can imagine that for some of the the white students in the room, it's also making them think, right, black men read just like white men read. Yes. And it makes them a little less fearful. Like, they don't have to look at this man who's maybe not in a suit, just in casual clothes, and walk past him in the store with their families and think, oh, my goodness, something might happen. I don't know this stranger. They can now look at them and be like, hey, that looks like the guy that read in my classroom. He was really cool. Mom, Dad, they're not, you know, like, it kind of, the whole thing was to promote reading, but also to kind of break some of those stereotypes. And that's exactly what I wanted to do with off children to see that black men aren't bad black men do read they come through they work for their community with all the negative things that we see in the news it's just really nice sometimes to see something totally opposite 
Sharita, this is so wonderful. And I love that you had this little kernel of an idea and it has exploded into this big, wonderful community effort. Thank you so much for telling us about it. Oh, thank you. Sharita Stokes is a veteran teacher in the Waterloo Community Schools. She's also co-director of the 1619 Freedom School, and she's one of the founders of Black Men Read, a program that has now gone district-wide in Waterloo, with more than 100 students connecting with students in classrooms all over the district. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. Support for IPR comes from Corridor Vein Center and Corridor Aesthetics, treatment for varicose veins and spider veins, also providing facial rejuvenation services and treatment for moderate to severe acne. More at Corridor Vein and CorridorAesthetics.com. This season, Garden Variety wants to help you flourish. Each week, our favorite horticulturists drop by with fresh tips. Subscribe and dig in. Head to IPR.org garden or find Garden Variety wherever you get your podcasts. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. David James Savarese, better known as DJ, is an award-winning poet and filmmaker. He's also an activist who is fighting hard for the rights of people who don't speak in traditional ways. He himself is autistic and non-speaking, but he is a powerful communicator. He recently published a new poetry collection called Swoon, and he'll be doing a live reading at Prairie Lights Bookstore in Iowa City tonight at 7 p.m. For this interview, Savary spoke with me primarily through typing and text-to-voice software. He also signs, does some vocalizing, and he writes messages with a pencil on paper. I visited with him at his home in Iowa City. So, DJ, the last time I interviewed you was in early 2020, and so much has happened since then. I know that your entire family has had to be really careful because of the threat of COVID-19. How did the pandemic change your life? It forced me to consider what matters most and to find multiple ways to continue supporting and doing what matters most in different ways. One of the ways the pandemic changed life for absolutely everyone, or at least for people who have computers, is that we've all done a lot more of our communicating online. Has that been beneficial for you in any way? I think yes. What's been beneficial is not using up so much of my energy and time traveling. I'm happy to travel for the right reasons, but I was on the road with my documentary film for much of the last two and a half years before the pandemic. And I enjoy staying in touch with my friends, managing to have fun and to connect regularly with them. I think everyone's been more available without having to commute to and from work, without a lot of traveling. I think we found ourselves connecting in a deeper way. 
I know that you've been working really hard to build your career, both as a, an artist and as an activist. We're in your home today, but I know that you also have an office. Tell me what your daily life is like now. I think what it's like isn't that different yet from how it's been throughout the pandemic. I am foregrounding my art more since winning an Iowa Arts Fellowship. I spend a lot of time writing and publishing, but I'm also starting to explore what kinds of in-person events might be possible here in Iowa City. What I like most about my daily life now is imagining ways to build connections and community between artists and activists here in Iowa City. And one way I hope wow. to do that is by exploring uses for a commercial space I've leased for a few months in the Goose Town neighborhood. And I want to talk about that fellowship that you have received from the Iowa Arts Council. What do you hope to do with this opportunity? Mm. Mm. The fellowship has really allowed me to remember that I'm a writer and an artist who's not just an activist. I'm using the fellowship to buy myself the time to write and publish more and to put down roots in the artist and writer's communities here in Iowa. Your new poetry collection is so beautiful, and it's called Swoon. You begin the collection with a section called Oberlin Diary, and you went to Oberlin College. All of the entries in the Oberlin Diary date from the spring of 2012, and each entry reads like a short poem. Some of them are about your life at the time, some explore your memories, some are observations. My favorite entry is from March 19th, 2012, when you wrote, For me, sleep is a luxury, like fresh strawberries or espresso. <laughs> that really spoke to me. I feel that. So by reading it, I can't tell if the diary was part of a project you were doing that spring or if it was part of something bigger. So. Tell me about the diary that you kept when you were in college. I never actually kept a diary in college, but Oberlin Diary did come out of a larger project I was doing around somatic practices and the teaching of Thich Nhat Hanh. I think what I most love about it is that it isn't what most people think of a diary being. I love that it's never smiling at us, but always smiling inward. Oh, interesting. Your college career at Oberlin was groundbreaking in so many ways, and you really are truly a pioneer for non-speaking autistic people. What do you want to communicate by sharing this diary, by sharing some of your thoughts that relate to your time in school? I want people to realize that we're all multifaceted people and it's not possible to know our intentions and dreams and thoughts simply by observing us. None of us can be defined by some single aspect of ourselves. There is another poem in the collection that really speaks to the fact that you are a pioneer and it harkens back to other leaders who broke boundaries, even though their voices and the voices of others like them were not valued. It's called Underground Alphabet, and I wonder if you would play a recording of the poem for us. And I know that this is read by Marco Wilkinson, who was your eco-poetry professor. Sure. 
The poem begins with an epigraph by one of my first mentors, Harriet Tubman. If you hear the dogs, keep going. If you see the torches in the woods, keep going. If they're shouting after you, keep going. Don't ever stop. Keep going. If you want a taste of freedom, keep going. A moves through the trees at night. B covers her face. C steals a canoe on the riverbank. D hides in a barn. E makes a run for it when cornered. F yells freedom at the top of her lungs. G sobs when a fellow slave is caught. H fights off hunger. I sits in a classroom at Oberlin College recalling her parents, Emmeline Eliza and Henry Irving. They learn to read, she thinks, with their feet, striding frantically across the page. Called to the blackboard, Mary Jane Patterson, with perfect penmanship, writes the word future. Outside, it's winter. Prejudice falls from the sky, blankets everything. Wonderful. You wrote this about that poem in the notes section of the book. In 1862, Mary Jane Patterson became the first African-American woman to earn a B.A. Uh. She did so at Oberlin College, where she studied, among other things, Latin and Greek. I was the college's first non-speaking graduate with autism. You have shown so many people, DJ, how important it is not to dismiss somebody because they don't speak. And I know that you're working so hard to make sure that non-speaking autistic people have access to education and are treated equally. Can you tell me how you think about the work that you're doing? First of all, thank you for mentioning Mary Jane Patterson. I wonder how many people know her by name. As a poet, Uh. I look for commonalities, not differences, between seemingly disparate people and things. For me, this poem is about every person who is denied access and equality because of how they speak or look or move. I think the activism I engage in and the art I create is appealing to the compassionate self in each of us and asking us to open ourselves to others. Well, thank you for mentioning Mary Jane Patterson in your book because I didn't know about her and it was such a gift to learn a little bit about her. You have been committed to this purpose for so long. What progress do you feel you've been able to witness? I think it's not an easy question to answer, Charity. I think it depends on what progress means. I think what I've been able to witness in the past five years regarding non-speaking autistics has been phenomenal, but it's a long way from what I dream of. Tell me what you dream of. What are your goals? These are big questions you're asking. I have grand dreams, Charity, and within them I'm able to find ways forward. I want us to find a way forward that's less defined by others. Right now I'm working on bringing a disability-led national grassroots project called the Lives in Progress Collective to Life. 
We all yearn to be an essential part of something bigger than ourselves. We all want the freedom to pattern our own lives. For those of us with disabilities, that freedom is called self-direction. Currently 1 in 50 adults with disabilities living in the U.S. self-direct and live the lives they imagined. The other 58.8 million deserve the same freedom. Lives in Progress will create a national collective of leaders with disabilities focused on transforming self-direction. Provide a national resource that allows individuals to build self-direction from the ground up. Offer multiple pathways and perspectives based on real lived experience. Offer fast, easy access to the various resources, programs, and supports used by others who are self-directing and assist people who want to move out of state for college, employment, and or personal reasons. A lot of the poems in Swoon, in this collection, are inspired by your early years, by the abuse and neglect of your birth parents, the terrible abuse that you suffered when you were in foster care. Why do you feel like it's so important to tell this part of your story? The second section of my book, Swoon, focuses on those early years of my life. Those years are part of who I am, of how I am in the world, and I want foster children and others living in unsafe situations to see themselves represented and not hidden from view. Many of us deal with the fear of abandonment all of our lives. Poetry helps me to manage mine, but not entirely. I know that you and your parents have worked so hard ever since you became a family to make sure that you have had equal opportunities with your peers. And there is a poem in the collection that really moved me. I think it's so beautiful. It's called Red Light, Green Light. And I wonder if you'd play a recording of that poem for us as well. Round and round and round they roll, voices blurred by the pulsating beat and metallic whir of wheels on wood. My fellow kindergartners, curly-haired Nikki and half-grinning Julia, Austin in his baseball cap, and Lisa of the trampoline. Deej, they squeal, a kind of moving sun, hands joined, reaching, stretching, hoping to add me to their ray. They don't see autism yet, don't know that I've been included. One and one and one and one makes four and one makes five. The disco ball freckles us with light. Red light, the skate station manager exclaims, and we drop hands, careening like cars on an icy bridge, arms and legs flailing. Nikki bumps Julia, who yanks Lisa, and Austin trips. I staccato past, unable to stop. Later, bare-toed and sandaled, I stand at the exit of the roller rink, blinded by the sun. Green light, Austin whispers, gently taking my hand. What do you want people who read or hear that poem to think about? I do hope people understand what's going on here isn't just a simple game on roller skates. 
I do want people to experience the joy of being an essential part of something bigger than themselves. I think often we forget to write about and pursue joy in our writing. With this collection, you have been doing some live in-person readings. You have another one coming up at Prairie Lights Bookstore in Iowa City. What has that experience been like for you? I do think in-person poetry readings are so much better than readings online. I think when we find ourselves at a live poetry reading, we find ourselves opened up in ways we rarely are these days. Whenever I give a poetry reading, I sense that people have deserted fear and allowed themselves to explore themselves more deeply, more clearly. We talked earlier about the fellowship with the Iowa Arts Council and your hopes to reconnect or deepen your connection with yourself as an artist. What, what's next for you? What is your next project or goal? I never know entirely. Life is always full of unexpected twists and turns. But one thing I'm very much wanting to do is to explore a communal, improvisational, performance piece called Neurocosmopolitan Kin. The piece decenters speech in the hopes of discovering new ways of becoming with. That is so exciting. I hope that, that you'll talk to us more about that in the future. Would it be okay if I asked you a question that you would write the answer to? Sure. Yeah. Last time you and I talked back in 2020, I remember that you had been doing some volunteer work in the community. You had been spending time face-to-face -face with people more. Do you feel like you have enough face-to-face -face connection in your life now because of the, or, you know, in the wake of the pandemic? I'm trying. Well, I hope... I hope that works and I hope it gets easier. DJ, this collection is so beautiful and I'm so excited that you're able to do in-person poetry readings. And I'm so grateful that you invited us back into your home to talk about it. Thank you so much. DJ Savaris, his latest collection of poetry is called Swoon and he'll be reading at Prairie Lights Bookstore in Iowa City tonight at 7 p.m. Coming up, folk musician Greg Brown reflects on his music and his long career. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. You already know you carry all of your favorite podcasts in your pocket. But did you know you can carry all of Iowa Public Radio, too? Just tell your phone to play Iowa Public Radio, News, Studio One, or Classical, anytime for your favorite stream. Now the railroad came 
generations ago And the town grew up As the crops did grow And the crops grew well And the town did too They say it's dying now And there ain't a thing we can do It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. Greg Brown's deep, gravelly voice and poetic songwriting is familiar to music fans across the country and around the world. He hasn't been touring for about three years now, but he is playing two sold-out shows Thursday and Friday at the Englert Theater in Iowa City with friends and longtime collaborators Bo Ramsey and Dave Moore. You can't get tickets, but you can hear Thursday night's show live beginning at 7.30 on IPR's Studio One stations. These shows are billed as Greg Brown retirement shows, but IPR's Karen Impola sat down with Brown and learned that that's not exactly how he's thinking about them. It's a pleasure to talk to you and an honor. Well, thank you very much. It's nice to hear you. So you've been pretty much retired for the last few years. What was the inspiration for coming out to do a few more shows? Yeah, I wasn't thinking of it a retirement thing. I mean, I I technically retired, I guess, about three years ago, uh, just about four or five months before the pandemic started. Uh. Uh, I had turned 70, and it seemed like it was about time to hang it up, so I did. But it sounded fun to do a few shows, so that's what we're doing. All right. So you, you and Dave Moore and you and Bo Ramsey, uh, I'll go back a ways. Can you, can you talk? For yeah, we'll about... go back a long ways. <laughs> well, why don't you tell us about yeah, I, I, how you first met each of them? I, I met Dave way back at the sanctuary, this joint here, and I was sitting. He was playing with another fellow. They had a duo. I don't remember what they were called, uh, but anyway, that's when I met Dave. That was probably in the real early '80s, and. Uh, Within a few years, uh, Dave and I were, I was starting to tour uh, around the country a little bit. And so Dave uh, Dave and I did a duo around, you know, New England, Florida, I don't know, various places. And we did that for several years. And then Dave got busy doing other stuff. And uh, then I think it was about 86 or 87, I went to Europe and did a tour there, Italy, Switzerland. Uh, I think that was about it. <clears throat> but anyway, I wrote a lot of songs while I was there, and I came back, and I realized what I'd written uh, would sound good with a band. So I called up Bo, who I knew a little bit. Both of both he and I had uh, dance bands around Iowa City for a few years before that. And I said, I, my band had disbanded, and... Uh, so I asked Bo if he would like to do a record, so we did, and uh, we've been playing ever since. All right, all right. Let's take it way back. When you were a kid, did you ever envision that music would be your your life, <laughs> your career? Your... You know, I don't. I, when you're a kid, you don't think of much about careers, but I love music right from the get-go. Uh, my dad being a preacher, we uh, there was gospel music, church music. And my mother's people in Southern Iowa, they all played something. Uh, Grandma played an old pump organ. Grandpa played banjo and fiddle. All the cousins played guitars and mandolin. So I was playing in family jams, you know, from the time I was probably five or six. Uh Uh, And I just went on from there. 
Yeah. But yeah, I I knew when I was I think when I was about eighteen, I thought yeah this is what I want to do. Yeah. And so it, uh, it takes a while to get going. But <laughs> well, at first I, you, I you left Iowa for do. a while. You went to New York and you went to the West Coast. Yeah. And, uh-huh. uh, yeah. What was that experience like? It was great. I loved New York. I had never been in, in a big city, let alone New York. I remember the first night I was there, I had my bag and my guitar case. And the five o'clock, uh, well, there was no whistle of blue, but... All of a sudden, all the skyscrapers let all their people out into the street. And I had never seen that many people anywhere. And I remember I got back in the storefront, backed way up there and got my guitar in front of me. <laughs> just stood there for about, you know, probably 40 minutes waiting for the crowd to thin out. Uh, but I know I love New York. I, I saw all kinds of things, heard all kinds of music. It was a real uh, eye-opener for me. And I finally got a job after hanging around there for a, a month or two. I got a job at a place called Gertie's Folk City, which had been a famous place in the early 60s. Uh, Bob Dylan started out there. Simon and Garfunkel played there. <clears throat> there was a guy named Bart who was from Oklahoma. And he, I ran into him in the street one day. And he said, how would you like my job? Would you like to take my job? And I said, yeah, I would. <laughs> he was going back to Oklahoma. <laughs> so I got that job at uh, Gertie's Folk City. And your job was to, it was six nights a week. You ran the hoot, the hoot nanny on Monday night. Okay. And then you opened for all the other acts during the week. Wow. So that's what I did for a while. And then I, then I got restless and got out of town myself, but... So then where did yeah, you go I went out to the West Coast. Uh, well, I, about a year later, I went out to the West Coast. I had a friend, uh, Marsha. She married Paul, and we had a trio for a while. It wasn't Peter, Paul, and Mary. It was uh, Marsha, Paul, and Greg, I guess. <laughs> but Anyway, she had worked for a while in a, a band called Fanny. Oh, yeah, uh, I know that. I've... Remember that? There, yeah, yeah. She was in that band for a while. And she had met this guy, Buck Ram, out in Vegas, who had founded The Platters and wrote Only You and The Great Pretender and a lot of other songs. And she sent him a tape, and he said, come on out. So we packed up the, packed up the van and took off for Las Vegas. Uh, I didn't like Las Vegas too much, or L.A., for that matter. But it was a new experience. So then what was behind your decision to come back to Iowa? You know, I, I uh, Paul and Marsh and I, we, we couldn't achieve blend. Uh, Buck kept saying, you, you got to achieve blend, <laughs> which apparently the platters had in aces. And uh, we never got quite to blend. It was almost a mystical term with Buck. Uh, so we, we hung out there for quite a while. And it, we could tell it was going nowhere, so we went to Hollywood, and we auditioned for the Holiday Inn circuit, and we got on. And we played Holiday Inns from there to uh, Wisconsin, I think, is where we finally hit the wall. <laughs> uh, Racine, I believe it was. And we played in the lounges, you know, four sets a night, uh, six nights a week. Uh, but to, you got room and board, and... 
there was nowhere to spend your money anyway, so we all managed to save up some dough. Uh, but yeah, then that that was it, and I I've kind of had had it with the music business at that point. I'd seen some of it and didn't really care much for it as a way to live. So I came back to Iowa and I didn't play for, I don't know, maybe four years or so. And so yeah, I, I just had kind of, I thought I had kind of had it, you know, eight by 10 glossies, <laughs> uh, lounges. <laughs> yeah. So what got you back into performing? I just sl- I slid back into it. The mill was here uh, then, the sanctuary. I started slipping into town. I was living about 10 miles west of town. But I'd slip into town and play a night at the mill or the sanctuary. And I just kind of gradually eased back into it. Pretty soon I was playing coffee houses in Rockford and Chicago. I kept doing that for a while. Then uh, the Prairie Home Companion show called me up and they wanted me to come up and be. So I, I did that for a while. Right. And then I just started touring and making records. Yeah, yeah, all right. So were you on Prairie Home Companion before you had made any records, or where did that fit in? Uh, I'm trying to think. That's a good question. <clears throat> you know, I think I think I had made the Iowa Waltz record, and that might have been it. Okay. The first time I played in Boston, I went down to, what is it, GBH? WGBH, yeah. Boston. And a guy named Dick Pleasance had a folk program on there. And I just was, I I actually did have a record. I just remembered I had one called 44 and 66. Right. I had that record. That's all I had. And I stopped by WGBH just to drop it off. I thought, well, maybe they'll play it. Maybe they won't. But uh, they invited me in. Dick Pleasance invited me in to the studio. He was on the air. He played my record. I couldn't believe it. I mean, that wouldn't happen now on a radio show. Yeah. Uh, but it did that time. Yeah. And uh, I was always grateful to uh, Dick for that. He was a great guy. Yeah. And so there's been, you know, in the time you've been performing, there's been so many technological changes and stuff. Can you talk a little bit about yeah. that? <laughs> well, uh, you know, the thing I worry about these days is when, when I was coming up, um, you know, there were, at first there were records, then, then there were records and cassettes, then there were, for a brief shining moment, <clears throat> there were records and cassettes and CDs. And when you're a musician, you had to lug them all around with you. Uh, but, you know, for me, as a working musician, uh, the CDs or whatever I could sell, that was a big uh, help in my income. You know, you could... And it wasn't all the musicians. They all took their records and CDs around. And, uh, but that's gone now. You know, it's all streaming. And musicians aren't getting paid for making music. So I, I just don't know how long that whole thing will last, you know. You don't ask a plumber to come fix your pipes and then give him a nickel. Yeah. Uh, you know, I don't, I'm not sure what's going to happen there, but I worry about... Uh, the younger musicians come along because it was always hard to get going, but now it's really hard. Of course, you can get on the Internet, but it's like being at the world's largest county fair or something. I mean, you stand over in one corner and yell, hope somebody hears you. Right. It's a whole different deal now. 
I think if I was starting out, I probably would get a job uh, working for the Forest Service or something like that. I don't, <laughs> I don't know that I would jump into music. Um, how does the songwriting process work for you? Are you a person who will, you know, say, say I'm going to sit down and for the next hour I'm going no. to work at writing? Or, or no, no, my pro. I've, I had a process. It was just. I'd be walking down the street or dry, often driving in a car, doing something else. And a song would, uh, pieces of a song would float in. Just there they were. And I would try to remember them and I would try to do something with them. Some of them took a lot of, like I remember I wrote a song called uh, Rex Ross's Daughter many years ago. And I must have written, I don't know, 50 or 60 verses for that thing. And I finally got frustrated, and I threw it in the trash. And uh, my my middle daughter, Consti, she was she came over to see me, and she saw something in the trash, and she pulled it out, and she she said, "Dad, you wrote this beautiful poem." And I said, "Well, I did, but it's no good." <laughs> she said, "Well, you got to finish it up." So I went ahead and uh, did that. But some songs are like that. Some songs, you know, I'd be riding in the car and going to the grocery store, and by the time I got back, I had a song. You just never know. Uh, I certainly never had a process. I'd, I loved music, and I loved poetry, and I was kind of uh, drenched in all that. And, you know, they just from the time I was a little boy, I was making up poems and songs. So Yeah. I think uh, a lot of little kids do I, that. I know, I, I yeah, know a lot my of little kids do it, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. then... Some people are lucky enough yeah. to not stop, I guess. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, the world will try to stop you. And uh, oddly enough, if the world can stop you, the world should. Because it takes a lot. Uh, you have to be uh, really committed to it, I think, to make make it go. You know, I also think that a lot of people that would enjoy all kinds of arts, uh, they get sort of shut down by people saying no, that's no good. Or, I was on this program here in Iowa in the late 70s called the Touring Arts Team. Great program run by a, a woman named Nan Stillians. <clears throat> it was her idea. We went to uh, little towns around Iowa. I think they had to be a thousand or less. And it wasn't hard to find towns like that in Iowa either. But we went to uh, about 20 towns per summer. I did two days per town. We would spend a day teaching. The first day we'd be teaching, and the second day, that night we would do a performance. I mean, I would sing, the painter would show paintings, the dancer would dance. And then the, we'd, we'd teach the next day, and then the second night, the show would be by people from the community, whatever the painters had painted and the people learned to dance and the song we'd written. It was a beautiful program, and uh, I think that did encourage a lot of people to go ahead and try something, you know? Yeah, yeah. I think whether whether or not you're going to make a a yeah. career or a profession about uh, uh, out of it, yeah. the arts are important, and it's a participation in the, art well, and yeah. the arts is important. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. How would you like to be remembered? Is there Are there... You know, particular songs that you hope are, you know, people are still playing. Well, you know, I, years I, from I, now. I was reading this. Uh, 
I was reading this writer sometime this last year, and I don't remember his name, which he probably would like, but he said his his hope was that he would be completely forgotten. <laughs> and my, <laughs> you know, I just I don't really think about that. I mean, you ne- you never know. Yes, one song might get remembered. None, may, you just don't know. And I've never thought about that or worried about it. I just uh, I wrote what I was given to write, and that's that. Yeah. Do you think it is given to you? It, it comes from somewhere outside of you? Oh, yeah, very much. I, yeah, I always felt like it was a gift. I mean, you got to take the gift and try to do with it what you can, but yeah, I certainly felt, in my case anyway, it was a, certainly a gift. She just lies in bed Musician Greg Brown talking with IPR's Karen Impala, host of The Folk Tree on IPR Studio One Music Service. You can hear his sold-out Thursday night show live beginning at 7.30 on IPR Studio One stations. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe.